0: Hebrews 2020, we call it that even though it's reached 2021. We see Jesus, and with each increment of teaching in this series, we hope that that's what's occurring as the eyes of our hearts are focusing on Him and as our minds are stayed on Him, as Isaiah 26 3 says. This is increment. 94 our 94th tiny contribution to a an exegetical exegesis or a theological exegesis rather of this wonderful homily which was written by a pastor teacher for a congregation in the 1st century and which was written by the holy spirit for a congregation in the 21st century So we commit our souls to you today, Father, for you are our faithful creator. We entrust our spirits to you, and may they be spirits of faith. We present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, for what is done in our bodies in this life is significant to you and rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. And we give our hearts to you, Father, in the expectation that by the Holy Spirit you will teach us, and we ask these things and we present ourselves in the name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, amen. Many times over the years in this assembly, we've considered the connection between Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 we alluded to that recently where god says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge and the connection with that to proverbs 29:18 which says without a vision the people perish my people are destroyed or lack of knowledge, and without a vision, the people perish. Thankfully, the book of Revelation presents a vision to the eyes of the heart that actually prevents people, especially God's people, from perishing. If they take the time to see it, to appropriate it, this vision, that is to take it to themselves and to see Jesus in it, the Passover slaughtered lamb who now reigns from the heavenly Mount Zion. That's the vision. We see it in Revelation 14:1 and following, and it can be compared with what we have in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. And we're going to be looking at that passage today, in fact, on the far end of Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. On the near end or the beginning, around the beginning, we have Hebrews 4, 1 through 4, both of which we'll take a look at today in what we've come to know as a kind of pincer movement of exposition. The lamb slaughtered and raised is the great king. He is the lamb king. Our vision of him is that of the great king reigning in the city of the great king. The new and the heavenly Jerusalem. Without such a vision, God's people wander off. That's what it means to perish. It means to lose your moorings, as it were. To wander off aimlessly. To be without normal constraints and restraints. It means that God's people become fretful and anxious. Now, Hosea speaks of my people. Proverbs speaks of people. God's people should be the vanguard for offering hope to all people. Now, again, without such a vision that we're going to see again today, God's people become fretful and anxious. They cave in under the pressures of adversity. They become seduced by spirits of the demonic kind that cause them to drift away from sound and saving doctrine. In some cases, they become embittered, and in others, they join Ideologies that offer false promises grounded in false premises. They succumb to despair and to guilt and to the soul-attacking false remorse that comes under pressure from ignorant ideologues who are the slaves and bootlickers of the accuser of our brothers and the slanderer of the companions of Christ. These are the people that will proceed no further, says Paul, so you can take heart. If we study Revelation and we're truly attentive and spirit-taught, God-taught, we're given a vision of the all-saving God and the Lamb. Now, when we studied the apocalypse of John under the title, Rev the Book, for that was our intention, to rev it up, to rev the book, we discovered that in presenting his vision report, which we called a rep, for short, a vision report, the report of a heavenly vision to listeners and hearers and seers, hopefully. In that rep, John used a figure of speech called polysyndeton. I'm going to write that down up here because it's going to be very important to the interpretation of our passage. A polysyndeton. That simply u- means the use of many ands. Many ands. N-D-S. Now, in the Greek, those ands are Kahis, K A I. You'll notice when you get the printed version of this message, you'll notice that Increment 94's title will be Kai, 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 that is Kai, repeated seven times with three dots in between, and you'll see why. Kai is translated and. For that reason, in Revelation, many English translations don't leave all the ands in. They put a comma there or they, they think it's an overuse of the word and. But and, the many ands, is an actual figure of speech used in vis reps or vision reports. And it expresses the breathless excitement of having seen a place that others are going to go to to live, a wonderful place to live. You go there and you say, well, there's beautiful mountains and they're snow-capped and there's beautiful cities and they have golden streets and there's this and there's that and there's this and there's that. The ands, I tried to maintain all of the ands in the book of Revelation because, again, it represents the importance of each feature of description in a vision it represents the emphasis of enthusiasm, and it also represents the independence of each aspect of a vision. So, polysyndeton is employed, or we could even say deployed, by John in Rev the Book. Many ands. Once again, E.W. Bullinger is helpful in his companion Bible at the end in his appendices, he defines this figure of speech, polysyndeton, as, quote, the repetition of the word and, which in the Greek text is kai, at the beginning of successive clauses, each independent, important, and emphatic. Now, in our passage in Hebrews twelve, Hebrews twelve twenty-two to twenty-four, I kind of discovered this by looking at the Greek text, which is always helpful. The polysyndeton that's used so often and effectively in John's breathless vision reports or visreps, the same polysyndeton is deployed in Hebrews twelve. 22 to 24. For those of you looking for things to study, I'd recommend a comparison of Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 with Revelation 21, 22 to 27. Look at it carefully. Revelation 21, 22 to 27 contains eight kai's at the beginning of clauses. It has three other kai's, but they're simply used as conjunctions. Eight refers to the new creation, of course. And so we have a reference to the new creation, which includes and encompasses a new Jerusalem. In fact, the new Jerusalem is the new creation because the glory of it fans out over the whole proportionate universe in the new universe. So in Hebrews 12, I've modified my original translation of it by incorporating the polysendeton into it. And it goes like this, and you'll notice in the Hebrews passage, seven ands, which is a number for completion. Modified translation with maintaining the ands. So it says, you have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Please notice that that is one of the primary features. We let Jerusalem into our mind and that's the one we let into our mind because we're citizens already of that city. You have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels in celebratory assembly, and the community of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and... God the justifying judge of all, and the spirits of the justified made complete, and the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and the sprinkled blood. Now when you add Jesus with sprinkled blood, you have the lamb, just as you have the lamb all over, in fact, 28 times in the book of Revelation and the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. So the use of many ands, or seven times kai K-A-I, in this passage reflects the excitement of one who comes back from scouting out or exploring a place that we can inhabit, that others can inhabit, and will, in fact, inhabit. A wonderful place to live. Now, I'm going to make a connection here, and there are many connections here, that it's very tempting to fan them out for several messages, but I'm, I'm trying to remain a little bit condensed in this. It's not unlike the report given by two of the twelve scouts who were sent by Moses to do a recon or a reconnaissance of the promised land and who returned with a very positive sit-rep situation report of the land and with confidence of defeating the seven tribes of Canaanites within it. They were fearful in their appearance. They appeared like giants and they were, of course, influenced by demon spirits, so it was. they were very intimidating if you didn't have a spirit of faith. Two of the 12 spies, or scouts is better, they did go spy out the land, but they did so as scouts. Two of them gave a good report. Ten of them, ten of the 12 scouts brought back an evil report. And they complained against the land to the congregation in order to bring forth evil words concerning the land. Numbers fourteen thirty six. You see, because ten of these men failed the grace of God and failed to appropriate it, their report to the people was evil. It was bad. And so it's so discord among the people. It brought forth evil words, and the people began to speak evil of it. And so, of course, that aided, to, aided, the, aided and abetted the rebels that wanted to return to Egypt. So that's why I ask, perhaps, that it would be good if you could read Numbers chapter 14. It's very helpful throughout Hebrews. It's instructive that these ten, who brought back an evil report, a faithless report, a report really of unbelief, They died by a plague before the Lord, it says in Numbers 14.37. While Caleb and Joshua, these were mentioned by name, were men of a different spirit, and we recognize that in our last increment. They had a spirit of faith in a couple increments ago. They brought forth a good report, And they brought encouraging words to the congregation. If you read it in Numbers fourteen six through 9. And it goes on to say, these two men lived on. The ten died in a, of a plague before the Lord, as if it was a judgment by the Lord. Where Caleb and Joshua lived on. Caleb is especially highly praised by the Lord here. He's featured more even than Joshua, who has a book named after him and after Deuteronomy, of course. But Caleb is especially highly praised by the Lord in Numbers 14.24. Like the catalog of commended elders or presbyteroi, men and women, in Hebrews 11, Caleb who's not mentioned by name in Hebrews 11, but nevertheless, he pleased God by faith, as Hebrews 11.6 says, and was commended by him in the spirit of Hebrews 11.2. Caleb and Joshua's scouting report about the land that God promised to the children of Israel and to the descendants of Abraham Caleb and Joshua's scouting report about that land and their exhortation to the congregation reflected a commendable spirit of faith in the Lord and a truly pastoral spirit. It reflected a commendable spirit of faith in the Lord, a knowledge of his election of the people, as 1 Thessalonians 1.4 says, Paul says, knowing your election of God. Without that knowledge, people perish. And his predetermined destiny, Romans 8, 29, our destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son in resurrection, for his people and for all people, for all will ultimately have that destiny. The spirit, small s, in Joshua and Caleb was one of confidence in the Lord to give them, quote, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's a very poetic metaphor for great prosperity, spiritually and otherwise. The exhortation to the congregation in Numbers 14.9 is also reminiscent of the spirit of the PT in Hebrews, especially this, and I've translated this from the Septuagint or the Greek text of the Old Testament Passage, Numbers 14.9. Look how this resembles what the pastor teacher is doing for the congregation in Hebrews. Caleb and Joshua said this, Only do not depart. It's a military term as throughout Numbers there are military terms or military terminology and throughout the Bible really. He means don't become deserters. Only do not become deserters from the Lord. But as for you, don't fear the people of the land. Now notice the audience that the PT was referring to feared the coalition or the collusion of Rome with apostate Jerusalem. And the social shaming doxing, trolling, whatever you want to call it, the cancel culture of the time. And they shouldn't fear them, because I'll tell you why. The cancelers have had their day already. They don't even know it yet. They don't even know it yet. Their time is up. It's passed by. For listen to what he says. And incidentally, the spirit of faith also reflects a historical consciousness an awareness of history. And so listen to this carefully. Only do not depart or become deserters from the Lord. But as for you, don't fear the people of the land because they are food for us. Caleb speaks, as well as Joshua, as pretty rough-cut military guys. They're food for us. We'll eat them up. That means we're able to defeat them through the power of the Lord. And this again this has a tremendous reference to Ephesians 6:10 and 11 for us because our enemies are not visible. They aren't people you see on TV. They aren't newscasters. But there are many people spewing propaganda today that are under invisible overlords. Those are the ones that we are combating. It is the principalities and powers world-dominating, invisible spirit beings who are the overlords not only of individuals and people and social and news media in some outlets and in some cases, but also of nations, belligerent nations, that are bent on dominating the world and destroying the free nation, a free nation like America. Recently, China in their state media, rejoiced at what they called the downfall of America, showing pictures of the recent capital catastrophe that happened recently. And so we do not fight against blood and flesh enemies. Our battle isn't with them, and so our weaponry isn't a weaponry that's used to kill the flesh or to shed blood our weaponry is the shield of faith our weaponry is a helmet of salvation which includes the assurance of universal redemption and reconciliation our sword is the sword of the spirit which we wield against uncertainty and against untruth and against propaganda our feet are shod with traction boots boots that have traction and that are shod with the gospel of peace, an announcement of peace and reconciliation. Our breastplate is the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteous act of God in salvation, and it's in our hearts. Our belt that holds everything together is a belt of truth, and it's truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. And so, our enemies are not only defeatable, but they have been defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we should have great confidence and not fear men. And what can men do to us, anyways? Jesus said, Don't fear those who can even kill the body, but don't have any power to destroy the soul or touch the soul. And therefore, Hebrews 13, 6, what shall man do to me? If the Lord is my helper, what can man do to me? The worst that man can do is to send me into the arms of my Redeemer. And so Caleb and Joshua had a different spirit. I didn't finish their exhortation. I just chose one verse, Numbers 14, 9 because it's so reminiscent of the spirit of the PT in Hebrews. Only do not depart or become deserters from the Lord. Sounds just like Hebrews 3.12. But as for you, don't fear the people of the land, because they are food for us. Their time has departed. Their time is up. He noticed that a culture and a land that God had sent them into defeat had had its time. Nations have their time. Cultures have their time. Marxism as a cultural ideology has had its time, even though it's rearing its head again. Different ideologies have had their time. They're done. They're finished. They're over. They may rear their ugly heads as Saul continued to throw his javelin at David. Goliath keeps on mouthing off against the Lord, but their time is up, and that's what Caleb says here in Joshua, their time has departed. In fact, they use the word aphistemi or aphistemi, A-P-H-I-S-T long E-M-I, which is the same verb that's actually deployed in Hebrews 3.12, which tells us what not to do. Don't depart from the living God. So their time has departed from them, but the Lord is among us. Don't fear them. And so I think from Numbers 14.9, you have a pretty good reflection of the spirit of faith that is throughout Hebrews and the exhortation of the pastor teacher. So the use of polysyndeton in Hebrews may be compared to its use by John in the apocalypse. I said I'd do it. Let's do it. He has seen the place John has. He has scouted the place that we are to inhabit, and he brings back a good report in Revelation 21, 22 to 27. This, again, can be correlated and even conflated with the vision of Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. If you compare these, in fact, compare the features of them that are joined by the kai's or the ands, you'll have a pretty good picture of where you're going, pretty good vision. And in every case, Jesus the Lamb is the center of everything, the center of everything. So here it is. John has seen the place that we're to inhabit, and he brings back a good report. In Revelation 21, 22 to 27, he says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the ruler of all and the Lamb, Is its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to give it light, for the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations, begins verse 24, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will carry their glory into it. And each day its gates will never close, because it will never be night there. And they will admit the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing may enter into it that is profane, no one who does what is vile and false, but only those whose names are registered in the book of life of the Lamb. Eight ands, like there's seven ands, beginning clauses in Hebrews twelve twenty two to 24. So kai's, K-A-I. At the beginning of Greek clauses, there are other kai's. If you're looking at the Greek text, don't be confused. There are other kai's appearing as conjunctions between nouns. For example, there's pantokrator, kai to arnion, and that's just the word kai joining the lamb and the ruler of all. And then there's delugma kai pseudos and "tain doxin kai tain te, timon, which also is just an and between nouns. But the, the ands that are be t- before various clauses, they fulfill the function of the polysyndeton showing that each clause is, as Bollinger said, independent and can be considered independently and explored individually. Important, that means that each of these features of the heavenly New Jerusalem are worth consideration in themselves, and they're significant. And also the ands are emphatic, meaning that, yes, John had an amazing amount of exuberance and excitement, you want to say it that way, when he came back from this vision and when he reported it. And so that's why the polysyndeton is there. It expresses a kind of breathless exuberance and excitement about what's to come. And so we translate once again the Eight clauses of Revelation 21 21 to 27 preserving the polysyndeton. Without the ands, a lot of translations don't leave all the ands in there. They miss the point and they miss the enthusiasm that's in there. So again, I'll read it. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the ruler of all, and the Lamb is its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to give it light, for the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will carry their glory into it. And each day its gates will never close, because it will never be night there. And they, the gates, will admit the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing may enter into it that is profane, no one who does what is vile and false but only those who are registered in the book of life of the Lamb. Now, right off on the heels of that, let's now consider again Hebrews twelve twenty-two to 24. And I have, I'll have it written in the Greek text. It'll be in the Greek text in our printed form of these notes. And then reflect on the modified translation with the polysyndeton preserved. That means I kept all the ands in because you have to. You have approached Mount Zion, readers of Hebrews, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels in celebratory assembly, and the community of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and God, the justifying judge of all. That's the central feature and the spirits of the justified made complete, and the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. That's the climactic part of the vision. So again, and I want to emphasize this because it's important. Here's my translation of Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. And this is a vis-rep. It's a vision report. But you have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and myriads of angels in celebratory assembly and the community of the firstborn enrolled in heaven and God the justifying judge of all and the spirits of the justified made complete and the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. Now, it's interesting what he does next. Listen to him. Listen to the voice that speaks from heaven. We're back to attentiveness. Each of these seven features, or personages, we could say, merits a message. In other words, you could do a message or really write a volume on each of these features. Each clause is led off by kai, and each is independent, or each descriptive phrase, we could say, is independent, important, and emphatic. Now, if you're listening to this and you're an astute pastor or Sunday school teacher or a parent who wants to teach their children, you can pick up on these seven aspects or features of the heavenly vision. You can expand, explain, and teach them. The big idea here is that as the sons of Israel had approached the land of promise, the readers of this homily had approached the heavenly city, as we have. As we have. The big question, would they turn back? Or would they go to Christ outside the camp? Hebrews 13, 13. Bigger question for us, will we? Will we go outside the camp to Christ, enduring his reproach, for it's guaranteed that we'll be reproached for doing so, because this is an evil age. It's governed by principalities and powers that have had their time, but though they've had their time, they're still reacting, still rebelling, still desiring to dominate and communicate guilt and fear and all the rest of it. If we do go out to Christ, outside the camp, And I'm going to explain in our final moments. The camp means Adamic ontology. If we do go outside the camp, we will do so as those who are armed with this vision. Not unarmed. We are armed with the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem in our hearts and minds. In hard times and in seasons of adversity, called the evil day in hebrews and ephesians rather 6:10 to 13 called the day of adversity in proverbs 24:10 in a day of adversity we must not be afraid of people we must have and hold a heavenly vision that will sustain us and keep us from perishing. Without a vision, people perish. We just saw that in the beginning. With a vision, God's people flourish spiritually. And all people in their generation and in generation to follow benefit by their overflowing cup. We must not be afraid of people. The fear of man is a snare says Proverbs 29:25 especially of a people whose time is departing from them We must not become like the desert deserters who deserted the Lord or like the deserters in Galatia who defected from him who called them into the grace of Christ into another gospel, defected from him who called them into a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God. There are not- notable correspondences then between Hebrews twelve twenty-two to twenty-four and Revelation twenty-one twenty-two to twenty-seven. There are also, and you can carry this in a lot of different directions. There are also notable correspondences between Revelation 14, which begins with the vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000, which is a multiple of 12, which speaks of the governance of grace, which is ultimately universal. Revelation 14 in Hebrews 12, 22-24. Ernst Cosiman noted this in his treatment of Hebrews, which he called the wandering people of God, which I read and found quite profitable. There are also notable commonalities, we could call it, or correspondences between Hebrews 3.6, where we just were, 3.14, and Revelation 3, 11 to 13, as we've seen. The Son of Man says, I am coming soon. Hold on tight to what you have, so that no one but you receives your crown. I will make you, or I will make the victor, the winner, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. And I will write upon him or her the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem. Revelation 3.12 which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let the one having an ear be attentive to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Right after the vision of New Jerusalem, the call to be attentive. Right after the vision of New Jerusalem, the call to be attentive also in Hebrews twelve twenty-five and 26, to a voice that shook the earth before at Sinai and is ready to shake the earth and the heavens together. So Hebrews 4.1. Now we're back to where we are in our line upon line study of Hebrews. We're never going to lose touch with that verse by verse, line upon line. So here's my translation of Hebrews 4, 1 to 4 in advance of dealing with it exegetically. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us be intensely concerned, lest any one of you think that he has come too late to enter it. For good news has also been proclaimed to us as it was to them. But they didn't profit from the message they heard, not uniting with those who heard by faith. For we who are believing are entering into rest. Just as he who said, quote, as I swore in my wrath, if they will ever enter my rest, which is an idiom for they will not enter my rest, and yet, his works have been in existence since the founding of the universe, says verse 3. Here the author is fanning out into a kind of universalism, And yet his works have been in existence since the foundation of the universe. For somewhere, and I like the way he does this kind of tongue-in-cheek, somewhere... He speaks about the seventh day in this way, as if to say, Well, somewhere in the Bible it says. That's not a very good argument. When you tell me that you have a certain belief system and you base it on this, somewhere in the Bible it says, you aren't going to win me over in a million years. He's using this kind of facetiously. Somewhere. He did the same thing in Hebrews 2.6. Somewhere, it says, God made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Somewhere. Well, we know that somewhere, Psalm 8, 4 through 6, or Septuagint, Psalm 8, 5 through 7. We know that he's speaking here specifically of Genesis 2.2. 2. He's brought Genesis into the mix here. So he says, for somewhere he speaks about the seventh day. Now we have rest connected to a seventh day, connected to a Sabbath, connected to a universal Sabbath, connected to an eschatological Sabbath, connected to the apokatastasis, panton, the restoration of all things, connected to the anakephaliosis Tapanta, the summation of all things in Christ, connected to the palingenesia, the again genesis, or the regeneration of all creation, connected to the reconciliation of all beings in heavens and on earth through the blood of his cross, connected to the deorthosis, or the rectification and correction of all things in the new creation, connected to the new creation of all things. In Revelation 21, verse 5, with a hearkening back to Isaiah sixty five, seventeen, and twenty two, and sixty-six twenty-two, and with a hearkening, of course, to Second Corinthians five seventeen and Galatians six fifteen, the new creation. So the PT ingen- ingeniously fans out the notion of God's rest universally because he shows that God rested after he completed the universe. And if you look back to Hebrews 1.10 to 12, you get the idea of God's creation and of the heavens and the earth, etc. Now, a Christological solidarity has definitively replaced a solidarity of humanity in Adam. Once there was a solidarity of all of humanity in the first man, Adam. Adam has had his day. His day is past, even though his ontology is still around. It's called the flesh. Adam has had his day like the Canaanites have had their day. Adam can project himself like a giant in his narcissism. He's still around ontologically, but he's had his day. Adam once enjoyed a solidarity in which all humanity was in him. But an Adamic ontology has been replaced by what I now call a Christic ontology. To match up with Adamic, I made it Christic. I've had to coin a little phrase to get more precise doctrinally. In Philippians 121, when a man like Paul is in the livingness of Christ, which is a Christic ontology rather than an endemic ontology, he says this and means it. For me, living is Christ and to die is gain. He says it and means it. He doesn't just say it because it's the verse of the day and it's a verse I memorize and it's a land I see over the landscape, over the horizon. No, it's a land I'm in. So, this is what I call a Christic ontology. That's a present experience of livingness under Christ and in him. It's also found in Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, by a participation in his fidelity. We also find it in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're being conformed or transformed into the image of the Lord by the Spirit of the Lord. So for us, and this is so important, for us to enter into rest and cease from our own works, listen carefully, for us to enter into rest and therefore to cease from our own works, means this, for us to enter into rest is to cease functioning altogether in the Adamic ontology. Now just as there once was a universal solidarity of humanity in Adam, so now there is a universal solidarity of humanity in Christ. And as in Adam all die and are Dying, so in Christ all will be made alive. Because of this, now this is even more important than that. Because of this there is a Christic, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-C, ontology, or livingness we could call it. Existence but livingness. There is an Adamic or a Christic ontology, or livingness, that actually replaces the Adamic ontology, or the livingness under Adam. Another way to say this, the new man, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the new man that we put on in Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10, look at Romans 13.14. Jesus Christ is the new man. He has entered the scene. The old man Adam has been replaced. He's had his day. His time is over. His time is departed. As they say with a Boston accent, he's the departed. He parked his car in Harvard Square and departed. Adam's time has come and gone, just like the time of the giants in Canaan. They're gone. In both of these heavenly visions, the heavenly New Jerusalem comes into view with the intention that it comes into our minds and that our minds get set on Jesus, get fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, I'm going to close with this because this is kind of like a quirky thing that came into my mind this morning when I was doing the final edits of this message. Remember, every message probably receives seven edits. It's purified seven times, and still, it's not perfect when we get them out as printed notes to you. And again, please read the printed notes. I beef them up. I do as much, sometimes as much work after I preach a message. I do as much work on the message as I did in preparation of it, because I'm editing and beefing it up with more verses. Sometimes you can take the verses that are referred to in parentheses and do a study from that alone. Don't even mention the content. Look at the verses that are in parenthetical, well, within parentheses in the written notes, and do a study of them alone. Because it's intended to be much deeper than meets the eye. So I can't urge that enough. I cannot urge that enough. God has given us this time to have these insights. And there's no better or other reason that excels that reason. So take advantage of it. Don't come through this pandemic in the summer or the late spring or whenever we come out of it. And having missed the purpose... It's not too late. Speaking to King Agrippa, speaking of kings that have had their day, Paul said, and this is extraordinary. It's Acts 26 19. Paul said, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, of course, what he means is he saw, not only did he see Jesus, the righteous one, and hear a word from his mouth. But it's very possible that he saw Jesus in the context of this heavenly city, this heavenly vision that we're talking about in Hebrews 12:22 to 24, Revelation 21:22 to27. And so, how can you be disobedient to a heavenly vision or obedient to it? Well, you can be obedient to it by letting it come into your mind and govern your thinking and increasing your faith and your confidence and your personal sense of destiny. So he said, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision in Acts 26, 19. So here's another question for you and for me, me especially, but also you. Will we be obedient to this heavenly vision by letting this heavenly Jerusalem into our minds and by living as citizens of heaven. Here's what happens if we do. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word universalism? Well, most people think of a universal salvation of all of humanity and a reconstruction or a redo of the whole universe. And you're right about that. But universalism refers not only to the universe in all of its times, which are destined for a recapitulation in Jesus, but it also refers to man or to an individual man or woman in their being and essence and acts. There is me, and there is the universal me, which is all of me, which is my soul, spirit, Heart, mind, body, everything about me, my essence, my acts, my being. The acts that I perform in this body. So when a man or a woman is controlled universally by the God of all grace, that means that all of their person is influenced profoundly by Jesus Christ. And it means, actually, that their universal person is Christic. christos Not just Christocentric, Christ all through. <coughs> so, now this is unfamiliar ground because, again, I'm sounding a note that will find itself in a crescendo later down the road. When a man or woman is controlled universally by the God of all grace, they are loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind and soul and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. That's only a reality when we are universally controlled by the Lord. This only happens when one person's One person is universally controlled by the love of Christ. Consider this trio of declarations as we close today. A trio of declarations from 2 Corinthians. From Paul, who enjoyed liberation from Adamic ontology like no other person in history, probably. Probably. Consider Paul, three declarations, a trio of declarations from Paul who enjoyed liberation from Adamic ontology and who had entered more than any other the Christic ontology and the livingness that is Christ, and who could say, for me, living is Christ, and mean it, and have it be an honest and authentic expression of his life. Here's the trio. He says, we have such hope. 2 Corinthians 3.12. He says, we have the same spirit of faith. 2 Corinthians 4.13. A spirit like Caleb's, different from the culture that was canceling him. Different from the complainers, the bitchers and moaners. We have the same spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 4.13. And greater than all, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. Speaking in the editorial plural, he means me. The love of Christ controls me. And he goes on to say, because we have come to this judgment Here's where we get the five levels of consciousness again. The five levels of intentional human consciousness. He said, we have come to this judgment after reflection that if one died for all, then all died. Paul considered the gospel. He said, what is it? One died for all. He said, is it so? And he reflected upon it and said, yes, it's so. And if it's so, he came to this judgment. When one died for all, As all, then all died when he died. Deliberating upon that judgment, on the fourth level of consciousness, after reflection and judgment, deliberating on that, the love of Christ floods in and begins to determine his thinking. Because he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Because we have thus judged, that if one died for all, then all died, then now, from now on, the love of Christ controls us. So, having come to this judgment, he said, and having deliberated, we've decided that from now on we will know no person after the flesh. No one in other words, we don't know anybody anymore after Adamic ontology. And we don't talk about them in their Adamic ontology or about what they did in sin in their Adamic ontology or how they shine out so beautifully in their Adamic ontology. We know no one after human standards, in other words. No one is to be identified as one thing or another after human standards. And then he went on to say in Second Corinthians 5.17, but if anyone is in Christ, they are identified as the new creation. In him, in Christ. Furthermore, because we have determined that all human beings are to be summed up in Christ, then in one sense they already have been, because they all died when he died, to be raised when he is raised, and were raised when he was raised. So one sense they have already been gathered into him and are part of the Christological anthropology even though they may not be expressing the Christic ontology. I know this is kind of, uh, it's over my head, so it might be over yours too. I don't know. But let us we have to aim and throw the ball a little beyond our reach so that we can go chase it. One need not transition into one thing or another. Because of discontentment with what you are and who you are. One need not transition into one thing or another to find peace and to find oneself. One need only to identify as Christ corporate and anticipate the trans configuration, which will also accompany the reality of there being no former antimonies, no more, no more antagonisms. In this new creation, like Jew versus Gentile, Christian versus Muslim, Democrat versus Republican, woke versus prole, slave versus free persons, or female versus male, or what or whomever. These antinomies are, disip- they've had their day, they're done. If anyone's in Christ, and in one sense, we all are because of Christological anthropology. Then they're a new creation. So even though people still operate in, crystal, in the Adamic ontology, we don't know them after that. That man's past. His day's come. His day's gone. There's a new man. His name is Jesus Christ. His day is now and forever we thank you father for that reality may we hold on to that reality may the vision that we've looked at today be more to us than some kind of otherworldly scenario may it be something that enters into our mind and captures our hearts and minds and we thank you father once again I'm overwhelmed by how you have provided through various means for this congregation For us to keep these online services and teachings going for we recognize a purpose in them that goes beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. A purpose that will not find its ultimate end in this life but in the life to come. And we know that many of us have already crossed over into that new Jerusalem and are part of the spirits of justified people made perfect and we are all destined to do so. We also know that you are planning to have your Son appear a second time to those that are still living on this earth. We may even be living in that time. We don't know. But we do know this, that when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. And even now, our life is hid with Christ in God. Amen.